to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N Tulsa.org. We are going to be in Daniel 7. If you want to turn there, open up your device. We'll also have it provided on the screen for you. So, um, hope you're doing well this morning. Um, I remember growing up and some of you may uh, have grown up in a similar situation uh, where growing up we would have um, with our um, youth group at the church I attended, um, they would have about once a year where they would bring in a youth evangelist or um, we also had a really well-known guy throughout the United States, uh, Dawson McAllister. And so some of you guys knew Dawson McAllister and it was a huge conference. There was like 5,000 people there, uh, kids. And then also we had... Um, uh, Falls Creek. And so we went to a couple of different camps. There was Falls Creek, and then there was like a Falls Creek on steroids called Faith Week. And that was supposed to be for all the really good churches. Um, and so uh, we got to go to those. And so uh, I think we used to go mainly for girls and sports, but God was an element there. I think he was there also. And so um, so in those top situations, when you're talking to a whole bunch of youth, um, I think sometimes, uh, and I was, I'm not saying this about like Dawson McAllister or anything, but um, sometimes in those camps, um, they wanted the guys who could get the most kids to come down, the most responses, the most people to respond at an altar call. call. So remember Friday, uh, Thursday night, cry night? So if you grew up going to those things, it, it built Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday, Thursday night, serious night. And it, you know, it, it got really serious. And so, because at the end, it was going to be, you know, just we're just, uh, you know, bow your heads and close your and close your eye, and everyone's just swaying back and forth. And you knew that song was coming, and you could just feel it, and you could be just tight gripping those chairs in front of you. And you know, they were bringing up all kinds of things. And so sometimes we would even have the ones that would say they would be telling us, and you know, even like younger kids, like some of you, you're going to be driving home in your church van, and that you're going to have a fly uh, a tire that that pops in your. Van. It's going to roll over and you're, you're going to die. And you know, you're just like, you know, these are seven-year-olds sometimes. And just thinking through that and uh, the idea of judgment. You could die at any time. Well, Dawson McAllister was famous for, he had a whole booklet. In fact, I meant to look this week. I may be able to find it in my stack of stuff. And it was a whole booklet that you spent like two or three days going through. And it had pictures of a lot of stuff from Daniel. So it was the end times. And, and so some of that um, was a little bit... Um, uh, pressured on the end of getting responses sometimes, like, you know, because, hey, Jesus may come back tomorrow. Jesus is coming back soon, 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 or your van may flip and you die. So you better right now, when you have this chance, come down. So some of you kind of grew up in that era, and so I uh, may have experienced that a lot. Um, we're we're going to be seeing here in, in Daniel 7 some of the things, some of the pieces that some of those uh, famous evangelists used. Um, the, the, the real truth is that those things are true. You, you may die before you get home today. Um, you may have an accident. Something could happen. Um, Jesus could come back. We, we, we're awaiting Jesus. We're wanting Jesus to come back. And so those are real things. We, we try not to be over manipulative with that, but those are real truths, and we're going to see that. So there is a judgment coming. Um, James is very clear, and I'll hit on that later, that, that um, man and woman are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. And so... Um, as you get older and you experience other world religions and you see different things and you begin to kind of question those things and maybe you just grew up in a churchy area in the Bible Belt or wherever your parents forced you to go to church and you get into your college years or after you graduate and you're, you're, you're maybe, maybe thinking through those different things. But, but our, our Bible says very clearly that man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So that's a reality. And so um, we're going to have this picture that we're going to look at today as the pointed main idea coming out of Daniel chapter 8. Um, as we've walked through that, I'm going to get to that in just a second. But um, as we went through, we had some um, different, um, what we called um, 
correlating chapters. And so we're going to see that um, this week in, in the mirror of the chiasm. And so chapter 7, if you remember, it relates to chapter 2. And the reason for that is that there's these parallel dreams. So chapter 2, if you remember, first we had Nebuchadnezzar who had a dream and Daniel interpreted well, now, chapter 7, a lot of correlations between chapter 2 and chapter 7. Um, and now in chapter 7, Daniel has a dream, and one of the heavenly hosts is the one who interprets for Daniel. So in chapter 2, it was the statue, and it talked about the four kingdoms. And then in chapter 7, there's a correlation of these four beasts that most people would say are referring to the same four kingdoms that was talked about in chapter 2. Because remember, this is a chiasm, and so that's what's brought out there. The point of chapters 4 and 5 we saw was this idea that God wanted to show Judah clearly, but also all of us today. Every, every century has people in it. Every people have sin. And so God wanted to show you're offering worship to idols and neglecting the one true God. And so we saw that in chapters 4 and 5. And then also um, we saw in chapter 6 this idea that the one living true God is faithful to save. So many of us just think of just Daniel lion's den. And remember I said that sometimes we, we kind of just put our situation, and maybe if you're a little kid, we, we put ourselves in a situation where I'm Daniel and maybe my, you know, my mom and dad, they're the lion's den, and I just have to bear through um, the, the bad treatment of my mom and dad, and that's the lion's den, or maybe my teachers or school. Um, or maybe if you're an adult and you're thinking my workplace or maybe even your spouse. For some of you, that's the lion's den. Uh, for some of you, I mean, we worked with college students for 15 years, and so singleness, that was the lion's den. So if you remember that stage of life, that, that's what it feels like. And so, God, please deliver me. I'm Daniel. By faith, I'm doing everything right, God. Aren't you going to deliver me? Well, that's not really the point. God was really trying to say, I'm faithful to save. I'm faithful to redeem. Not necessarily always removing you from your uncomfortable circumstances, but I'm faithful to save. And so um, this week we're going to see um, what would God want to say after the, the last um, few chapters being in Aramaic, remember the switchover from Hebrew to Aramaic, and now this is going to end today, uh, to next week actually, at the end of chapter 7, what would God want to be saying to the nations? Because in chapter 8, he goes back to Hebrew insider language for the Jews, for Israel. And so his last statement after all of these things, the one that he, what would God want to want the world to know about himself? This and this is what I would say he's trying to get out in chapter 7. This one living true God is faithful to his holy justice. He's faithful to his holy justice which includes his redemptive purposes. So there is right and wrong. There is sin and consequences. There is righteousness and reward. Sin will not go unpunished. Wrath will be dealt with. And if you think that, you know, sin being punished or justice, is justice that really a big of a deal? Well, every time someone just says words that hurt your feeling, feelings, you want justice, don't you? Something inside you swells up and that was wrong. Why did they do that? So, so justice is a huge, beautiful attribute of God. And so we haven't experienced true, holy justice. Think through the pureness and the beauty of a God who always does right. People around you who always do what's right and righteous and, and don't hurt you. Um, think through the beauty of justice. Um, and so um, we're going to see that this week, that there will be a day of recompense coming for every person, every people, every nation. True justice will be judged by the one holy righteous judge. So uh, we have to, before we dive into chapter 7, we have to think through some context here. This is a parallel dream, uh, like I said, the four kingdoms in chapter 2 going to, um, that were brought up by the statue. Well, now we're going to have these four beasts and they are representing four kingdoms most people land on. Um, whether you want to land on these are specific, or if you want to say, just generally speaking, there are going to be kingdoms, and kingdoms include people. So some people would land a little more loose in general, like, well, we don't know it was exactly Babylon, and then the Medo-Persians, and then the Greeks, and then Rome. We don't know that it was exactly like it does make sense. Um, and in chapter 2, there are some things kind of lean towards that. But even if you just want to say, I kind of interpret this as there's um, the, um, 
just general kingdoms that are, that are evil and ruling in the world power system, and God's going to come, and he's going to overtake all of those. So some people go with that interpretation. Some people say it's specifically those four kingdoms we mentioned in chapter 2 and then in chapter 7. Um, also, for this, as we get in chapter 7, we're going back in time. So it's not a chronological book. So you get to chapter 7, and we go back to um, Belshazzar. So remember there was Nebuchadnezzar? Um, and then there was Belshazzar, and we just dealt with him. What was that, like chapters 4 and 5? And so um, we're going back in time. The first year of Belshazzar's reign is when Daniel has this vision and this dream. Um, I think chapter 8 is going to be um, like the second year or third year of his reign. And so we're going backwards in time, so keep that in mind. Um, so what's the point here? What does God want us to walk away with? I want two things for you to, to walk away with clearly. A courtroom scene and a wonderful judge. I think God is wanting everyone to know all these nations, my last word to all these peoples, not just Judah, but in Aramaic, a courtroom scene and a wonderful judge. Now, now, maybe not a wonderful judge if you're not on this God's side, right? But that's what he wants his people. That's what he was communicating to his people. And so um, this is what Daniel's going to see. Before we read it, I wanted you to see kind of the breakdown of this chapter just to bring some clarity because this gets into some um, difficult language. So um, the first thing is just there's four beasts that symbolically represent four kingdoms, and that's in verses 1 through 8. So chapter 7, 1 through 8, these four beasts that symbolically represent four kingdoms. Secondly, it's a great courtroom. Um, and the Ancient of Days, as we just sang that song, the Ancient of Days, um, that he was the one that, that had no beginning. Um, and so we see this picture, like I said, a great courtroom and the Ancient of Days in verses 9 through 12. And then the Son of Man coming again in his kingdom, and that's in verses 13 through 14. And then we're going to see this interpreter on the kingdom in verses 15 through 18. That's where we'll end today. Uh, it's kind of a synopsis that the writer purposely puts there. And then next week we're going to talk about more of the fourth beast and, and the one little horn. That's in verses 19 through 28. And so that's where a lot of people land on their eschatology, their beliefs on the end times. Um, and so I uh, wanted to just spend a little bit of time just to help us biblically think through those things. So let me pray and then we'll dive off into this chapter. Um, Father, we are amazed that this word that, that we read today is not stale. It's, it's not a story that has no meaning. It's not, a, it's not a fictitious story, even though it is a story that is uh, prophetic and apocalyptic, that, that it's not actual literal beasts, God, that are rising up. That This is people. This is sinful people. This is angelic beings and Satan working together against your kingdom. And so here we are in 2021, surrounded by spiritual warfare that we don't even recognize is going on. We have hearts that are prone to wonder, as we sang earlier. Prone to wonder, not even from spiritual attack, but just our own hearts that desire things that are not you. Just like we saw in those earlier chapters, Father, that we, we have this proneness to wander and to look for idols and ignoring you. And so would you bring all of this together and show us that you are worthy and show us through your word how glorious you are, but also how worthy of worship you are because you've poured out the gospel to us. You've poured out grace on those of us who are in Christ. Would you let us rejoice in the truth of justification in the courtroom and let us rejoice in the beauty of this wonderful judge. In your name we pray, amen. So let's read there uh, verses 1 through 8. Chapter 7 says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, so like I said earlier, we're going backwards in time, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, <clears throat> like a lion, and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. And after this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings and a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, 
terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked by, up by its roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. So we see here, and like I said, we have to stop, and immediately we have to pause and go, what just happened here in the text? So um, the key thing is you're having your quiet times at home, as you're reading in different books, one of the things that makes us better Bible people is we've got to be aware of changes in the literature structure. So what happened in this text? This went from a historical narrative for six chapters. It was history written down and repeated. This is what happened exactly. This literally happened just this way. We may not understand all of it, but this is exactly what happened. Chapter 7 begins and he says, I had this dream and vision. Things were like this. There was this beast. There was this scene. So we just went into prophetic and even apocalyptic language. So you have a change. So the author, as he wrote it, was thinking, surely listeners are not going to interpret this literally. They are going to understand, I'm now changing my literature, changing the color of my pen to where I'm writing in symbolic language now. So it's not going to be four exact beasts, that, and we've got to figure out what great sea that they're coming out of, and you know, people are looking around, what do these beasts look like? It's not trying to be exact and precise, because we've moved into um, prophetic and apocalyptic language. So you have to switch your goggles when you're reading a scripture. It's like when Jesus is in the New Testament, and he's uh, um, teaching stories, and, and it may, the, the, the writer Luke or Mark or John may say, and they were traveling from this city, historical facts, and they went into Samaria, historical facts. Jesus taught them, do this and do this, so some commands and some, some, some law, right? Then Jesus said a parable. You've got to pause, and the parable is not an exactness. It's representative of something else. And so you've got to be aware of that when you're reading the Bible and studying the Bible. So um, you switch your goggles. Um, so chapters 1 through 6, historical narrative, this gets into prophetic and apocalyptic. These are similar but not exactly the same. So you'd say, hey, thank you. What's the difference between a prophetic writing and apocalyptic? So think through just, just simply the prophets of the Old Testament, all those guys that you don't know when they were alive and why they were so angry, it seemed like, or why they were so fearful. The, the, those prophets, the major and minor prophets, what were they doing? They were kind of going in between God and man with a message, right? And so they were, sometimes it was good news, uh, rarely, and then sometimes it was bad news. And so um, they always had images and pictures, usually, of God's redemptive plan. No matter how bad it got, they were always pointing to Christ. They were always pointing to, Here, here's this sin you're in, Israel. You better repent, and there's good news, salvation, a promised land, being restored back to God. That's our hope. So they were prophetic, and, and a prophet spoke about future times, but that didn't necessarily mean they were talking about the end times. Apocalyptic is future times, but it's also about end times. So apocalyptic, the word in Greek, uh, uh, apocalyptos, uh, um, uh, I forget the exact wording on it, just off the top of my head. And so it means revelation. So the whole book of revelation, that, that's, that, that's the term in Greek that they use there. And so it means end times, a study of the end times. So eschatology is a study of the end times. So apocalyptic language is future, but it's also talking about the end times. So we have to kind of keep that in mind. So there's this image here of this great sea. Was there really a great sea? Some people want to get detailed about it's the Mediterranean Sea. Everyone knew that as the Mediterranean it, it, it's an image. It, it's floating. In, it, it, it's an image in his head. Who gave this to him? God. Because God was wanting to communicate something, so he used images that we would understand, this big C. And so when we see this, um, for the context in our setting, we don't even get the importance of this. When he starts out with this picture of, in my vision, I saw this gray sea, this turbulent waters. So for the uh, people of the near ancient east, um, their understanding of other religions and other gods. So going all the way back, you know, Abraham in our Bible, going all the way back to Abraham's day. So that's way, 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 way back, right? Um, even then, 
other religions, other false deities, they started many times with a story of this picture of this great sea. And, and it's not like this picture of like, you know, there's nice winds blowing, the four winds of heaven, and there's this nice breeze on this coastal area. We're talking tornadic, like hurricane force, just all these horrible things going, this turbulent, turbulent, evil, luminous, powerful thing, almost otherworldly. And then here come these creatures, these deities. So even in our story, Daniel, remember Babylon? their main god was uh, Marduk. Marduk was one of the ones who had risen up out of the sea at one point, and many other deities and many other um, false religions had a picture of this great turbulent sea, and a deity would go against a deity, another deity, and it was a battlegrounds, and that was not unique to Christianity and was not unique to Judaism. Don't let that throw you if you start reading about other religions and they go, just like in the Bible, this religion believes this. It doesn't mean our Bible is not true. God wanted everyone to have a clear picture. He's not saying, this is where I came from. He's saying, your story about your false gods had a, had a beginning story. I'm, I'm not even going there. That's not my beginning. That's what God's saying. That's, that's not my beginning. But I know that you guys, they, they understood there's this powerful sea where these deities would go to battle and whoever won would be the new God, right? And so that we would worship and, and, and bow down to. And so he starts it. That's their understanding of this, this Near East, uh, of the Near East peoples, the ancient Near East. It was a battleground. And so um, remember what I said earlier about God in his last message in Aramaic? What was he wanting to, to communicate to these people? Um, what does he want the watching world to know about himself? God is the giver of this dream, and notice he starts it out in a way that all these peoples throughout the world, all these peoples and tribes and nations and languages, they understood that context. They understood the sea. They understood that these idea of deities. But notice what God does. These four beasts are nothing. Right away we see that the, 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 one of the main beasts, he says he was just killed and judged and thrown away. Like he's, he's a little bitty pawn. He's not a deity. He's not a god. It, it's this beast that seems powerful to you guys and you're fearful of. He's nothing to me. I will do with him what I want. He will be allowed to do something. The other three, I'm not even going to kill them. I will allow them to remain for a while. We'll see that next week. Here we see God shows off these terrifying, otherworldly creatures, and there's nothing in comparison to him, the one true living God. So what was he wanting to say? These stories you've heard about these other religions and other gods, they're false. I'm the one true God above all those things. I'm in control of all these things is what he's bringing out. So this one turbulent sea and these four ferocious beasts. Um, one of the things that he um, wants to bring out is this idea um, that on these four beasts that they are just pawns. He's allowing them to have rule and reign. Now that's difficult for us. That would be difficult if you're Judah at the time, if you're Israel at the time. Uh, when we see horrible government leadership that is oppressive, that's, that's difficult for us to bear, and to see that God is the one allowing that. But so these four beasts, they're ferocious. They're, they're fearful of these beasts. So now let's, let's take a look at these beasts. Let, let's see what do they represent. So first of all, the first one's a lion with eagle's wings. Um, this is the original Buffalo Wild Wings type thing, except it's like lion and eagle's wings. Um, some people believe this is... Um, symbolizing Babylon. So again, so you may say, I believe this was Babylon, which matches up with chapter two. And Babylon had come on and we, we saw that actually, and it was fulfilled, right? So Babylon had come over and took over Judah. And then we even, we've already gotten to the point in Daniel where Babylon is crushed, right? And the Medo-Persians take over. Remember when they took over with Belshazzar? The next one is the bear with ribs in his teeth, these teeth of iron. And so some believe the second beast symbolizes the Medo-Persian kingdom. The third one is a leopard with wings on the back and forehead. So, so already you can picture these in your head and, and you're going, what, what's the point? Who is that? What is this supposed to mean? And I, I want you to remember a courtroom and a holy, just God. A courtroom and a holy, just God. Don't get distracted by a tree when God's showing us a beautiful forest. Don't allow little bitty distract. What do the wings mean? What, is, what does this mean? What does this mean? When he goes more specific about the one horn that ripped out three of the horns, then we go, oh, for some reason, God's drawing a little bit more attention to that one. And Daniel, his wording even says in verse 19 or whatever, is like, and let me go back and talk again about this little horn. So God's going, focus in a little bit there. Um, 
on all these creatures. And then he gets to the fourth one. He's, he's even different from this. On the leopard with wings and the four heads, a lot of people say this symbolizes the Greek kingdom that comes. So remember Alexander the Great. And what did he do? Remember, he died at 33, and at 33 years old, he had conquered the known world. It was, it was vast and sweeping. He, he came in and just ruled over. And so then when Alexander, and so that's, it talks about how powerful he was, how swift. So why does this leopard have wings? People interpret it that like that, the speed of an eagle or something flying in. Alexander the Great came in and just shoosh, just took over the world at 33, before 33 years old. And then he dies, and instead of having a new ruler, four people took over. Four different leaders took over instead of one kind of king. And so they say, oh, that fits exactly. Do you see God's sovereignty in the details? Now, some people go, hey, that's not actually, that can't represent Alexander. And that can't represent Babylon. So wherever you want to land on that, even if you just say, don't know which kingdom that was, maybe it's just evil empires, um, the point that God's making this is I'm the one true ruler over all these things. And so um, that, that should secure your heart. The last one is non-descriptive. Yeah, it doesn't give us an animal, but yet distinct from the others. It even says it, he's, this one's different. It has ten horns with one little horn. Uh, many people say this was the mighty Roman Empire because it, he's, it, in the wording there it says terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong. Um, um, when you see that, that's exactly how people thought of um, Rome. And even the, the iron teeth that it has, it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left. Um, if you remember in chapter 2, iron on the statue, in chapter 2, the statue, iron represented Babylon. That's what most people, I'm, I'm sorry, represented Rome. That's what most people believe. So remember, these were not actual beasts. They're, it's not a, a real sea with literal beasts. This is prophetic and apocalyptic language. So it's trying to communicate something about God and what God was doing, but using this picture. So the danger, when we go in reading stuff, there are many mysterious, complex storylines and scriptures in the Bible. And so when we're trying to interpret the message, we've got to use the same literature interpretation as the writer used in writing it. So if they're writing poetry and we're interpreting it with literal interpretation, we're going to miss it. So like Song of Solomon or a lot of the Psalms, um, it's just pictures that he's doing. It's a beautiful picture of God's creativity, that he's not just one-dimensional. He's not just a math and science guy. He's also a beautiful artist and a beautiful songwriter. That's all the beauty of God's diversity. And so um, uh, the danger uh, that we have sometimes is we, we get further away from the author's intent. So if I were to take today's times, this is happening all over, and there's tens of thousands of these people. You, you may be one of these people. But, um, so which country, if, if, if I was just reading this, I'm reading through the Bible, I'm supposed to have quiet times, my pastor's told me, and I just happen to pick Daniel, and I'm reading, and I get to chapter 7, and I do a little Google search, and all of a sudden the top 20 that pull up are like, this is us. The end times are near. Do you see how that horrible government just took over America and all those leaders? Do you know what's going on in Europe right now? Do you see the ties between Europe? Do you know what the animal symbol for Europe is? Oh, the lion. Oh, my gosh. All that crazy stuff that's happened with the, the EU. And we know that they're trying to form together some kind of this one world government. So the, the United Nations that was for a while is kind of falling apart. And there's this, this desire. And England ruled for so long. And now maybe they're wanting to reinstate themselves. One world government, the EU. And then they control money. We've heard about this. Get the mark of the beast to get food. You're going to have to do it. Are we? So do you see how people read Daniel 7? So here's what people don't do. They don't go, oh, let me look at it historically and, and look at people that have studied the Bible and history for a long time. If you don't have a good biblical understanding of language and the way that this literature is symbolic, you don't realize that, oh, there's 15 different nations in the world presently today who have the lion as their animal symbol. Oh, most of Africa has the, the lion. Oh, oh, that makes sense. I spent six hours studying this, thinking that you know Europe's going to take over. And so the sad part about that, uh, most of us, when we start thinking about end times, you know, we've heard about this term, the Antichrist. So um, here, here's a great question to ask. So who is the beast, or who is this, maybe this king or the, this nation, or even maybe the Antichrist? And when is he going to rise against us? 
That's what we all want to know. I mean, all the way back to, you know, Faith Week and False Creek and Dawson McAllister. Who is this beast? Who is that Antichrist? When is he going to pop on the scene? And then when is he going to rise against us? That's what people want to know. And at the very core of that, here's what really is going on in our heart. How is that going to impact me and my family? What if Europe were to rise up? What, what, what if it's one of these powerful Muslim nations and one of those guys we're terrified of that, you know, that just seems like they're just killing all these people over there and, and that guy becomes the Antichrist? What is he going to do to us? So let's do this little thing together, this little um, thing together. Where, so picture a map in your head, just United States. And you know where the Middle East is over there, right? North Africa, Middle East, where we think of all the terror. If that Antichrist were to rise up, what's he going to go and come and do to us? What's the Antichrist going to do in his powerful regime going to come and do to us? You see, who's the us in your story? Is it America? Sometimes we have a very American nationalist Christianity versus a biblical Christianity. Ask people in Sudan, in Iraq, in Jordan, anywhere in the Middle East. Hey, is it end time suffering going on? Martyrdom? Death? Suffering? Yeah, the whole last 200 years. That's all we've been living out. I remember hearing people talk about, you know, there's no way God will allow God's people to suffer. Jesus is going to come back before all the bad times hit. Oh, the bad times for America, you meant? That we're this, this emerald in his eye that he's protecting? Do you see how we have an unbiblical view? So who's the us in your story? Many Christians, we would, think, we would even think, and people would even do this. You'll see this happen uh, in the next you know, 10 years. People, if someone did come to power and, and, and like Christians, like you know, Jerry Falwell or something, I don't know if he's still alive, someone identifies him like, we believe this is the Antichrist Christian. Here's what American Christians would do. We can't let this happen. We cannot let this happen. Don't fall for this. Let's write thousands of blogs and do all this stuff. Let's have conferences on. We can't let this happen. And guess what? If it is, God is making it happen. He already told us it's going to happen. Your American rights and national pride is not going to get in the way of God's matters of working. We're 4% of the world's population. People have been living in oppression and suffering and martyrdom all over the world for the last three and 400 years, 500 years. We have a very egocentric view. And we read the Bible with an American lens going at a core heart level. I don't want things to get discomforting for me and my family. And yet 70% of the world are facing persecution much of the time. And so who's the us? God is going, my people throughout the world, not just you Americans. So I hope that kind of reveals a little about how you read the Bible. The author's intent is this courtroom, and this judge. So keep your eyes on this judge, the one true king who will establish his everlasting kingdom. Um, we can see how bad interpretation leads to that. And so let's go into this next section, uh, 9 through um, 14. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the, the south. Oh, that's chapter 8. That would be really confusing. I was going, I have not studied that or read that all week long. Sometimes as I read the Bible, God just puts new scripture in there right in the middle of that. Has that ever happened to you guys? I'll write a book about it. It'll make money. I was joking. So um, as I looked in verse 9 there, as I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words, and the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were pro prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in night visions... 
in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So some beautiful stuff there in this, this vision. So again, so remember, we're, look, let's look at this wording here, 9 through 10. Thrones were placed. This ancient of days that we sang about. He took his seat, his clothing is white as snow, his hair like pure wool. So it's this white look. So is, is this really a picture of, of, is this literally God as an old man that's kind of ushered in? There's this big gold throne. He's got the, the Santa Claus white beard and, and white wool hair. Is that physical and literal or is that symbolic of something? It's symbolic language. We don't want to view God as an old man who gets tired, right? And so um, this language is symbolic on purpose. Um, is his chair a literal physical chair? Um, and and with, with literal fire flowing out, is that what heaven's going to be like? Um, it's symbolic of something about God. So, so the, the, the white hair, the, the white beard, the white, um, the, the white wolf hair, it's representing wisdom. It's representing purity. It's saying, this is who I am. Not expect with your eyes to look and see me, and, and this is what I'm going to look like in human form. That's not what he's doing. He's going, an ancient of days means one who is before all time, one who has no beginning. And so it's symbolic language. Um, God the Father is spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is spirit, right? Scripture is very clear, invisible. Jesus became man and has a physical body now, right? So God the Father and the Holy Spirit are spirit. When we get in heaven, it's according to Scripture, unless it's just a mystery that God, and there, you always reserve that right, God has the right, he has the asterisk at the bottom, that God the Father, invisible, the spirit, invisible. The Son, his exact image. You want to see the Father? Look at the Son. Jesus even told his people that. So um, some difficult things there. Um, he places himself, the point of this, he places himself at the center of the scene in a horrifyingly powerful, dominant spot, almost unapproachable, like with all this fire and all this, but then he throws in pictures of people that are there to serve him and to be with him. So a beautiful picture and this horrifying picture. So think about not just us American Christians, but peoples from other nations and tribes, other languages, other gods. And so they would be fearful of this. And so there is, there is judgment for sin. There is wrath coming for those people. So this courtroom setting is supposed to lay that out. But then notice the picture that he brings there, that there are people there in his presence. So for some religions, that, that, that just doesn't meet up for some of these false religions. So these people we've seen, they have this fear of this sea, and God used that story. Remember the, the, the origin story of the sea? What were people's views on courts in those days? Think through that. So now here, here he brings in this picture of this powerful sea, and he's this dominant, powerful um, God above all these things. And we just read where he takes the, the, the powerful horn that's speaking all this smack and just, dunk, you're dead. Like just flicks him with his finger and you're gone. And now he brings in the courtroom setting. So this is not like our understanding of the courts. Think through a commoner. So you understand that people lived in statuses and status levels, and, and they still do to most part of the world. So you would be extremely fearful to be brought into a court any other place in the world. So it was not the idea of the innocent till proven guilty. It's not the idea of a fair trial by your peers. It's not the idea that we have here of a public defender is going to be given to you. That's unheard of in many parts of the world, even to this day. So we have a wonderful government that has provided that for us for our safety. Notice God's placement of this holy court as both a warning and a security. Um, all of these things bring up this beautiful view of God. Um, listen to Isaiah 66, 15 and 16. It says, For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots, like a whirlwind, to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. You feel that? You, that's just saying, I don't think I want to mess with that. I'm terrified of that. 
Who wants to be on the wrong side of that type of God, right? For by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh, and the slain of the Lord shall be many. Kind of matches up with Jesus saying, few are going to find the kingdom of God. Many are headed towards destruction. Few are going to find the kingdom of God. So we see here this, this powerful picture, this intense courtroom. He wants people to see and feel the dread of this courtroom for all those who are guilty. And so all tribes, peoples, languages, all types of beliefs, here's this courtroom setting that God holds up, and now he's this powerful, sovereign judge in the middle of it. Um, like Jason said earlier, the Ancient of Days, he used that. That's the only time in Scripture that he is called the Ancient of Days. And so, for again, for all people, some would lean on that was just communicating them. Whatever God you believe in and the origin of their story, he was before all of them. He has no beginning. The Ancient of Days. Um, think through context. We have a very clear Trinitarian view. Right? So when it says here in this section, um, like look in verses, um, I think it's 13 and 14 there. Um, I saw in the night visions, um, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was pre presented before him. That's confusing if you're in a, in a different religion. That's confusing. Um, for, for Muslims, that's confusing for a lot of people because we have a clear picture, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Think through their context. He just brought in a picture of this powerful judge, the, the, the Almighty One, and now this one called the Son of Man who comes in who is brought before the Ancient of Days and something's given to him. What is given to the Son of Man? It's a kingdom. It's dominion and power that now the, the four kingdoms, those powerful beasts, they will be no more. So you have this, this devastating picture of these evil, powerful beasts, these four things, and now you have the good news that one is going to come and overtake all of them and bring on hope and life. But you're still in the courtroom sitting, and the Son of Man is in the courtroom with you, and the courtroom brings fear to all of us because we know we're guilty. And so all these people throughout the world um, have this picture and John Calvin said this, said, we ought not to imagine God in his essence to be like any appearance to his own prophet and other holy fathers, but he put on various appearances according to man's comprehension. I'm painting this picture for you so you can understand this. You, you, you can't even imagine what I'm like. I'm almighty God. I'm invisible. I'll stop there, period. You can't imagine that. I created everything. I'm invisible. Holy Spirit, same thing. I'm the one who opened your eyes. You can't even imagine that. I'm going to give you pictures of things that you can comprehend so you can understand true realities about me. So he's using objects that we could understand. Um, because the world didn't understand at that time anything about a Trinitarian view. So why? Because he couldn't say this. Um, the Lord, Yahweh, right? Because that's how he's been identified through all the Old Testament. The Lord, Yahweh, gave glory and kingdom, a kingdom to the Son of God. Didn't have a Trinitarian view. And God was okay with that for a long time, right? And so think, think of the grace poured out in your life. These people didn't understand Jesus on a cross for their sins. God was saving people through uh, one who would come, and they didn't even know what his name was. Think of the grace on our lives. Um, this was for our weakened comprehension, not a weakness in God's revelation. So, so I, again, pointing out this courtroom and this holy, just judge. That's what God's wanting to bring out. Um, this little beast, we're going to spend more time on that next week, but notice he's saying great words. Um, Daniel says he was saying great words. This is not good words. This is not good news. It was blasphemous words against God. Great words meaning that they were pompous, defamatory words that were attacking God. So if you go on chapter 7, just read a little bit further in chapter or verse 25, it says, He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. So many people would say this is characteristic of the Antichrist. So if you look in Revelation 13, you can go and write that down, put that in your phone, go look in Revelation 13. For people that say that, you know, there's this Antichrist, it says there that it's referring to him, that he was speaking defamatory words against the Most High. Um, but Daniel um, makes clear that in this vision, 
the Son of Man comes. So we've got the Ancient of Days, which people would attribute to God the Father, and then you've got the Son of Man. Over 80, I think it was 81 times in the four Gospels, Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. So 81 times, and 40-something, 41 times in just one of the Gospels. I'll forget which one it was, but 41 times in just that one Gospel. So 81 times Jesus made clear, I am the Son of Man. If you remember, there's a couple of times where, um, actually, they, the, the, and I had it in my notes somewhere where um, the, uh, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees are gathered, and Jesus says, I am, he makes a, 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 a statement claiming that I am the Son of Man. Well, they knew Daniel. And so he was purposely talking about himself as the Son of Man, equating that with God. They knew that that was equating him with God the Father. And so they, they were, that's when immediately they wanted to kill him. And it says that they, they made plans then, we're going to kill this guy. This is blasphemy. The, 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 the chief priest tore his robe and cried out, blasphemy. Are you hearing what he's saying? We know what he's talking about. The Son of Man was spoken about in Daniel, and it's identifying with God. This guy must be killed. Jesus clearly is the son of man here. And so um, in the middle of this image of this dark, evil, luminous sea, producing these evil beasts that seem so fearful, um, we have, it's overtaken by this image of the son of man riding on the clouds. He said this repeatedly, even to, um, as he was facing judgment himself, um, that he was facing um, death and he was saying, I'm going to come riding on the clouds. The Son of Man is going to come, and you're going to see me riding on the clouds. And we see this overtaking all the evil scenery that had been going on there. Not a beast of the animal, but, but one like a man, the mediator between man and his God. And as we, we see many places, I could go into a lot of stories about where he, God is, is you know, the, uh, he's... Uh, coming on the clouds. He's with the clouds. So remember the, the, the children of Israel, he was in a, in a cloud of smoke. Uh, he's in a cloud and then a fire by night and a cloud by day and they followed him. What was the picture there? He was wanting to show them. Why was he doing that? To show them God with you. I am with you. All of those situations was this picture of God with you. That's my goal. Um, so the walk away of chapter 7 a courtroom, and a holy justice judge. So this picture that he brings out to the end there in verse 17, these four great beasts and four kings who shall rise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Notice the picture. The Son of Man is giving a kingdom of people. The Father bestows that upon him. And that's the picture of what? Eden, the way God started out, it's Eden restored. God with his people. How many times in the Old Testament that God said, I will be their God, they will be my people. And this is a quick little bitty summary, just in a couple of sentences, of actually a, a bigger backdrop of before the beginning of time, before um, Genesis, before the story of Adam and Eve, everything, that the Trinity decided the Father would elect and, and produce a people that the Holy Spirit would awaken those people to new life, and that that group of people, those people that are following Jesus, that are redeemed by Jesus, they would be given to Jesus. So Jesus, no one comes to me except the Father would draw him. God goes, here are this, this group of people I'm giving to you. The Son takes those people, redeems them through his blood on the cross. They're his people now, blood-bought, Holy Spirit brings new life to them. Jesus comes back to the Father and presents this people. This is a gift back to you, Father. These people will worship us for all eternity because of what I've done. That was, that was the plan. That's a simple, that all the Bible is that in a nutshell. Is that not beautiful? And these three or four verses bring up all of that in just a very concise way. So the walk away that I want you to walk away with is a courtroom. This courtroom should serve to remind us that there is a holy standard. Sin, remember the word for sin, is just missing the mark. In Greek, it just means missing the mark. There's a holy, righteous standard. You should die the first time. We don't deserve life, even on this earth, much less eternal life. And with all of our sins, we've missed the holy standard. Romans is clear. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Um, in Romans 5, that that even 
as we're, even as we're dead in those sins, that, that God has, has given us this, this gift, that, that we would be the ones that would, would receive this gift. While we were still just enemies from him, God poured out grace upon us. And so some beautiful things. So the courtroom should remind us that we don't want to be a people who do not treat God as God. And then also um, think through this idea of this holy justice judge who knows every thought, every desire, every action. But this judge is completely counterintuitive. So I said, let's remember the courtroom and let's remember the holy justice judge because justice demands that wrongs were taken care of, whether that's people attacking you, hurting you, sins, stolen, physical abuse, all kinds of abuses, wrong things that kings do, that presidents do, that every single person does. Justice demands that those would be righted. And so here's this judge who has a son and takes the person that's standing in the guilty box and he takes and says, you can go free, stamped, not guilty, justification. You get to remove yourself because my son's taking your place for your sins. And so a courtroom and a holy, just God. If God wasn't just, Jesus didn't have to draw on the cross. If God wasn't just, if he could just drop it and just go, oh, you know, I'll be okay with unholiness. I'll be okay having sin in my presence. I'll bring you people in without you being reconciled and redeemed. Then Jesus would have never had to die. But God would have to stop being God in that because his essence is holiness. His essence is righteousness. He can't stop being holy. He can't stop being righteous. So be thankful that you know about and have got to hear repeatedly about this Instead of the scary judge, you're getting to hear about a judge who says, I tell you, you are stamped not guilty. You are justified before my eyes. Receive the righteousness that my son provided. Receive the forgiveness he provided. You get to live with me for all eternity. You get me as your reward. That's the picture that that Daniel 7 brings out with our understanding of the gospel message. So walk away knowing that justice is coming to overtake evil. God is in control of all things, will not be mocked, and walk away knowing both trembling and rejoicing at the picture that he provided of this courtroom and this holy, just judge. So you may take just a few minutes just to consider that uh, before we go into the Lord's Supper. I want to give you some time just to think through. So where is your heart at? Where, where is your heart at? Are, are you overwhelmingly grateful, like maybe upon the first days of, of your salvation? where it just produces joy when you think about this judge. Instead of being fearful, or maybe you're a person who struggles with still God is this angry judge, and he's just, he's just always just condemning, condemning, condemning. And you need this picture of this loving father that's going, I condemned sin, your sin, on my son. He took your wrath. You don't have to live in condemnation. It doesn't mean you just get to keep on sinning. That would maybe prove that you're not even understanding the gospel. But you need a picture of this loving Heavenly Father that's going, come to me. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to fix yourself up and come to me. Come to me. No matter how bad you've blown it, no matter how far you've got, no matter how, how much you've failed, come to me. I'm in love with you. What, what more can I do to prove to you what I've done to, to make this okay, to reconcile you? What else should I have to do to get you to stop beating yourself up about this? I love you. I don't love the future version of you. Come as you are. So some of you may need to spend some time just thinking through that, his grace and mercy. Some of you go, man, if I faced him right now, it's wrath. I haven't surrendered my life to Christ. I haven't received his forgiveness. So so, so you need to think through that. So I'm going to give you some time just to pray a couple minutes before we go into the Lord's Supper. Let me pray now, and uh, then I'll let you spend just a couple minutes praying.